Well, Psalm 12 is where we are this morning, so I'm glad you have your Bibles, regardless of your location, whether here in Carlisle, here in the room upstairs. Let's uh, take our Bibles. It's the Word that does the work. And so we want to make sure we keep our nose right in it and hear from the Lord this morning and pray His Spirit will do what only He can do in our midst. Psalm chapter 12, as you are turning there, A question for you, not trying to be humorous, I'm actually trying to ask you a question, but it could sound a little funny because we usually hear this phrase in somewhat of a um, humorous fashion. Have you ever felt like the world is going to hell in a handbasket? That's an idiom we use to describe feelings that we have, uh, and typically those kind of statements are hyperbolic. If you were to be technical and accurate, it wouldn't actually be true completely. They're just ways that we express emotions and feelings. Sometimes they're ways that we lament over the current condition of things. Let me give you some examples of things like that that, that I've heard that I've even said at times. These would be uh, some even made me more local. Like, for instance... Everyone in our community worships sports. Like, like, there's a part of that that you feel like, I, I resonate with that, but technically it's not really true. But you get the heart of it, don't you? You feel like someone's kind of moaning and they're grieving over a situation. All Christians are hypocrites. No, they're not all hypocrites. Are you, are you getting the point? Things like going to hell in a handbasket, all Christians are hypocrites. You know, there's not a single true Christian in the public schools. I've heard that before. Like That's not true either. But these kinds of statements, they reflect hearts and souls that are lamenting a situation. Evil is rising like a flood, and it seems unstoppable. You ever felt that way? Sure you have. And you probably said something similar to these kinds of statements. That type of attitude is how Psalm 12 begins. I'm not afraid to say to you, it begins with a hyperbolic emotional statement from David. Do you see verse 1? The last part of it? The loyal have disappeared from the human race. <laughs> when I read that, I was just like, David and I, we'd be in good company. Like, I felt things like that to where what I've said is technically not accurate, but it's to represent the overwhelming sense and the emotion. And watch this lamenting that I'm having over the condition of something. So that's what we're going to look at in Psalm 12. It's a communal lament regarding the state of Israel at a specific time. It's like David is saying in our vernacular, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The truth is, as we read Psalm 12, we'll see that David's honest lament is over the reality that there were very few voices left to speak and to stand for God's truth. And so we're going to see how this unfolds for us as we do a few high-level things about Psalm 12 I want you to know. The context of Psalm 12, which is written by David as a communal lament for the people, 
It's probably in Israel's days of decline. So that leaves us two options. Either when David was running from Saul, and thus the people were following a man they chose outside of God's will. We'll call it his allowable will. We know God works all things according to his will. There's a sovereign will. We understand that nothing's unordained by God. But he let them have the full extent of their wrong choice. So Saul's the king, and then that led to multiple problems. It could be in those days where David's on the run. He looks around and he says, man, is there not anyone who's standing with me? It could be when David's running from his son Absalom. Jury's still out on which one, but we do know this. It is a time when David looks outward and he senses that he's the only one left standing. The structure of this psalm is such that it matches the other psalms of lament. Let me show you the structure here briefly. Briefly, Travis, of course, laid this out for us. We'll see this in every psalm of lament, just to make sure you understand that there is a kind of a poetic or even musical structure to them. Here's how Psalm 12 lays out. There's an address to God. Then there's the complaint or lament before God, the request, of course, and then there's a statement of trust in God. Just keep that in front of you. As we look at different laments, all the Psalms of lament are listed in your journal. Uh, every single one of them, over a third of all the Psalms are laments. You can attach this structure and see how they all fit the same musical um, kind of pattern. Notice about Psalm 12 specifically, though. Here's its outline, and we'll stick to this this morning. It will help us understand really the main theme of the psalm. There's a description of the situation first. Then there's the decision of God in verse 5, and then the response or the declaration of the people in verses 6 and 7. So with that in mind, some high-level perspective. Let's read Psalm 12 together, can we? You follow along as I read. Here's verse 1. Help Lord, you ought to put a square around those two words, circle them. That's really the request. That's the lament. That's also the address. So much is tied up into those two words. Help, Lord, for no faithful one remains. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. In other words, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. That's what David is feeling. That's what he's lamenting. He further describes it in verse 2. They lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks boastfully. Almost an imprecatory request there in the middle of this description. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 4 continues. They say, through our tongues we have power. Our lips are our own. Who can be our master? Because of the devastation of the needy, now a new speaker's jumping in, verse 5, because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. Circle the word longs. It's another word for lament. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. What a beautiful contrast from the way the words of the wicked are described in verses 2 and 4. And so because the words of the Lord are pure and they're refined, they're purified, they're perfect, they're trustworthy, verse 7 is stated, You, Lord, will guard us, you will protect us from this generation forever. 
The wicked prowl all around, and what is worthless is exalted by the human race. Interestingly, you can circle verse 8, draw a line back to verse 1. They serve almost like bookends, don't they? You see how the words the human race are in both? And though verse 8 is not quite as hyperbolic as verse 1, I think the sense of the text is this. David's concluding this lament over uh, the, the condition in front of him by saying, man, everyone's drowning in sin. Let's take a look down, if we can, at these three aspects of this psalm. First of all, look, at, look with me at how David describes the situation, verses 1 through 4, essentially as one of pervasive evil. Just jot that down, would you? This description is one of pervasive evil, and that's, that's why he really gets hyperbolic here. You could even say he's emotionally exaggerating, so to speak, like the loyal have disappeared from the human race. Um, they're all exalting what's worthless, verse 8 says. And so what he sees here is really just that there's no one to trust. In fact, as you look at these verses, you see things like they're lying, they're deceptive, they speak boastfully. Pride is something that uh, characterizes these people's self-exaltation. They refuse to acknowledge God as their master. And this primarily is coming out in their words. You notice that in verses 1 through 4, right? David is centrally saying he's aware of this pervasive evil because of the way people are talking, the way the evil use their language. And he is just really over the flagrant fist of these people in the face of God. He's over. He's like, this is frustrating. And so he says things in verses 1 through 4, like, man, is there anyone left on the earth that loves you, Jesus? Is there anyone standing for you, God? Is there any voice that we can trust? You know, when I read Psalm 12, I'm reminded of what Elijah said in 1 Kings chapter 19. Catch the parallel here. He had just heard Jezebel's words. It's around verse 10. But Jezebel had threatened Elijah. Elijah, I'm going to kill you. Elijah runs and finds a private place in the wilderness. An angel comes to him twice to give him food and to help him and to encourage him. And he finally just laments to God why he's out there. He says, I'm the only one left. And of course, the Lord's quick to remind him, no, I have a few hundred others who are faithful prophets. You're not the only one. But in that moment, Elijah felt like because of Jezebel's words that he was on the run cornered and the only one left. Now, I would say probably many of you can relate to whether it's David in Psalm 12 or Elijah in 1 Kings 19. You've at times wondered, am I the last person standing? Are there no faithful ones left? And you sense this because of the words of, of what's around you. We could use the idea of our media. You could use... Um, Things you hear, things you read. Lest you think this is just something made up, I'll give you three recent examples of how words combined with images that uh, you know, reiterate every syllable can make you start thinking and feeling like, wow, evil is just pervasive. It's everywhere. Is there anybody who loves Jesus? Here's three examples. The Super Bowl. Mainly the halftime show. I'm not talking about the game per se. 
even though it's obviously a temple where people worship, right? Ouch. But the halftime show was just crazily immoral. The words used, think about just a few weeks before that, maybe a few days, the Grammys. I'm giving you the culture's icons, iconic events, the things we, we platform, the Grammys, visible, obvious, satanic worship. I'm not going to these now. I'm just saying if you're ever wondering, like, why do I feel that way? Well, there's two examples. Here's a third one. The uh, State of the Union speech. When death is celebrated, it's hard for me to fathom a leader who doesn't fight for life. I, I, it's hard to fathom that, okay? And so taking red, blue, green, yellow out of it, just looking at humanity, when I hear words like I heard at the State of the Union, I hear words and see images like at the Super Bowl and the Grammys, I start wondering what David wondered in Psalm 12.1. Have the loyal disappeared from the human race? You see, David's not alone in this sense that, wow, evil is, is like a flood. It's rising. It seems unstoppable. It's pervasive. It's all around us. Fortunately, David assures us that God is aware of this and he knows his people are in the midst of it. He knows they're sensing this and in their hyperbolic fashion, they may be actually expressing things that aren't technically accurate, but they're representing a true heart and a sentiment. God knows this and so verse five gives us God's decision. I love this verse. Look at it with me again, would you? Because of the devastation of the needy, the groaning of the poor, which really that opening phrase gives us an indication of what the wicked and their pride and in their words and their actions, in their wrongful use of power in verse 4, all those things are resulting in the devastation of the needy, the groanings of the poor. In other words, they're taking advantage of the vulnerable and the weak and the needy. God says, because of that, I will now rise up. Amen. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. The decision here is one of promised protection. So if the situation, if the description is of pervasive evil, here's the promise to God's people in the midst of pervasive evil. Promised protection. Now notice something. The decision here is that God will provide safety. He will protect, but we're not told exactly how he's going to do that. That's a little frustrating. Can you just be honest with me? Like, uh, God, could I have a few more details, please? You're just a normal reader. You're probably asking that. I think there's two reasons for that. It, perhaps the first reason is the protection is God himself. He's the one providing it. So we find our refuge in him. The second reason is it may be that this protection, this promise is still future in its ultimate form. And so he's, can we say, uh, helping us trust him. He's calling for faith from his people to trust him, to stay put, not to run to quick fixes, easy exits. 
the emphasis here is that the protection is from the Lord. It's his decision. He will bring it to pass. I think as you examine the real, not only grammatical structure of the text, but even just the, the ambiance of this verse, what you'll find is that the decision is not that we'll be removed out of it, but shielded from it. And to those who long for the Lord's protection, this is what you're promised. You will be shielded in the midst of it. We'll be removed one day when he comes, right? But until that day, you're not left in a vulnerable position eternally. He's promised to be with you and to protect you in the middle of it. This is very comforting, church, that God hears the laments of his people. Notice the word long in there. And he does respond by promising protection. We're not always guaranteed or promised the exact how. We just know that God will protect us. Now, Matthew 6 and Jude 24 lean into this same promise. In the Lord's Prayer, we're to pray that the Lord will deliver us from the evil one. It's Matthew chapter 6. In Jude 24, we're told that the Lord will keep us from stumbling. So there's something larger in play here when it comes to protection than just your body. Anyone here who's dealing with cancer or who was involved in an accident and you have lifelong lingering issues, you would probably agree. Like, yeah, there has to be something more in play. I don't, didn't think I was protected necessarily, but something is in play beyond your body. In fact, it goes back to Matthew 10 when Jesus said this, do not fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Your greatest issue isn't protecting your body. If the worst thing happens to your body and you die and it's buried, if you belong to Christ, it'll be raised to a glorified body one day. The biggest issue isn't your body's protection. The largest issue is your soul's protection. That's what he promises and that's what's found in Christ. And that's what he says here he will promise to do, take care of his people where it matters most. He will shield us. He will guard us in the midst of evil and from the evil one until the removal of evil and the evil one. That's when Christ returns. And then we will enjoy not only freedom from the power of sin and freedom from the penalty of sin, then we'll enjoy freedom from the very presence of sin. I long for that day. Don't you? Can we say it with me? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, I need to pause here and make sure that you understand something. That protection I just described, that benefit, that blessing is only for those who are in Christ. So to anyone here this morning who's curiously wondering, should I believe the gospel? Should I really put my faith in the historical, supernatural, theological reality that Jesus came, he lived, and he died. He rose again. And that one life, death, and resurrection reconciles me to God. Like, is that really worth it? Psalm 12.5 would say, you bet it's worth it. 
It's your means of protection currently and eternally. And I would pastorally plead with anyone on the fence about your decision for Christ, trust Christ today. Put your feet on the gospel as the only way to be saved and reconciled to God the Father through God the Son, Jesus. Ask God in the plainest of terms, God, save me through your Son, Jesus. God will do that. And you'll be guaranteed what verse 5 talks about. The Lord will provide safety for you. He'll never let you stumble and he'll deliver you from the evil one. This is why the declaration of the Lord's people is so beautiful, beginning in verse 6. Again, put your eyes on this, would you? After the Lord speaks about his decision, David, on behalf of the people, responds with these words. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. How beautiful, he says, the Lord will guard us, the Lord will protect us. And then he says, the wicked, they'll, they'll prowl all around, but yet, even from this generation that seems so wicked and bent towards evil, God will protect us, even when what is worthless is exalted by the whole human race. So David here is doing something intriguing. Watch this. He's verbally doing with the Lord what the wicked people did in the opposite direction. They used their words. Remember verse 4? They used their words in their lips to say, you are not our master. We're our own Lord. David says the opposite. You, Lord. See it in verse 7? You'll guard us. You, Lord, will protect us. It's a beautiful picture of the humility of God's people in contrast to the pride of the wicked. And this is what humble people say when they see what man says versus what God says. They put the two words kind of side by side, and they ask this, whose words can I trust? And they realize the words of the wicked are flattering, deceitful, they're lying, and they end in devastation of the vulnerable. But God's word is true and tried and sure. It ends in protection form. So I'll take my stand with God's word. David's declaring that when evil proudly bears down upon him, both verbally, verbally and violently, he will find his refuge in God. And so his declaration is one of a permanent position. David is saying with great certainty, we're going to trust God's word, not man's word. We will stay put right here. So you follow the outline? There's this description of pervasive evil. There's this decision from God, promise protection. And David's response to that is one of permanent position. I'm sticking with God. When I compare the two, one's flattering and deceitful and destructive. God's, it's protective and sure and tried and refined. So I'm going to stay put on God's word. Let me suggest two ways to practice this. Because obviously all of you would agree with me. That's what we want to do. We want to stay put on God's word. But sometimes we have intentions that don't translate to action. Ouch again. Here's two ways to practice verses 6 and 7. First of all, stay true to your convictions. 
I'm giving you these in light of the culture's perception and the culture's pervasiveness when it comes to evil. Like, like everything around you seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket. All seems lost. Sin's flooding in. It's rising. Everyone seems to be affected. What do I do? How do I stay put? How do I stay true? First of all, stay true to your convictions. What God's word is clear about, just stay there. I know you're getting the knee in the back from the culture on all kinds of issues to change your mind, to move your feet. Here's some pastoral, plain advice. Don't. Just stay put on God's word. The culture can be in a frenetic uh, situation. You don't need to be. God has spoken clearly. Be content and stay right there. Amen, church? So be true to your convictions. Second of all, be true or stay true to your commitments. This refers to our behavior. See, the first one's our beliefs. Here's about our behavior. And, and often I think this is where we see the movement first. And then sometimes people say, well, if I'm going to act this way, I better go ahead and just admit I've changed my beliefs. But don't, uh, don't miss this. We never change behavior unless we change belief first. It's always beliefs that change, whether visibly or inwardly. These things start changing. That's what causes behavior to change. And I want to encourage you, stay true to your convictions and stay true to your commitments. I'll give you just a real simple one. I'm not tooting our own horn here. I'm tooting the horn of God's church. But I'll use this one as an example. It's, in, it's interesting to me how, how often people decide to, to leave their church and do something different just when things get difficult for them personally. They didn't seem to feel that nudge just because they saw other things, but they just felt like, well, this isn't going like we thought. We're just going to step out. And um, I'm not... Um, just because I work here, I'm not um, immune from that. I recall 2010-ish, 2011-ish, some men here who were elders and some parents here who remember this. We had some days in which our youth ministry was struggling. We were rebuilding some things, made some decisions that we thought would work out. And to, in all frankness, they didn't work out like we thought. Our intentions were good. The results weren't that great. So we had to kind of regroup. And in the middle of that were my two daughters, Brianna and Bethany. Well, I can say to you, frankly and humanly, they weren't our greatest years in youth ministry, okay? I know that. You and I have talked about it. And in fact, in those years, Bethany and Brenna talked to us about it. What about over there? What about that place? And we said to them this, this is our spiritual family. This is our church. And we're going to stay true to our commitments even when it's difficult. Are you hearing me? I just want to encourage you. You teach your children more about how to handle difficulty when they're that age than when they're older. And I would be cautious about flip-flopping and changing just because things are difficult when your kids are teenagers in those years because what you're going to find is when they get older, they're just going to think, well, I'll just change again. I'll just move. I'll just do something different. And they're always trying to find a quick exit Trying to find a, a, a simpler solution, shall we say. 
I just want to encourage you, stay true to your convictions and stay true to your commitments. And that's just one example. I'm sure there are others. Keep this in mind as you think about your decisions, your commitments, your situations. The end result of endurance is better than the immediate result of exiting. That's 99% of the time true. That long distance eyes and long-term endurance pays off in the development of character and maturity. And that's what you're trying to do with your children is teach that so that when you're not there, they still make good, proper decisions. So as you think about the culture leaning in and being just heavy on you with its pervasiveness of evil, here's your permanent position. I'm going to stay true to my convictions. I'm going to stay true to my commitments to God, His church, His people, His word. And I'm not going to try to find a quick exit just so things around me feel less pressure. This really is the, the sense of the psalm. David sees what's happening around him. He hears God's words in contrast to the world's, and he makes a deliberate decision. I'm sticking with God. So let's regroup and kind of get our hands around the whole psalm as a unit, okay? I'll end this with a question. Just follow me here. We've got the outline. We see the psalm, just eight verses. But essentially and summarily, when you sense, and we admit that sometimes our sense of this is in an exaggerated fashion, but when you sense that the world around you is plunging headlong in evil's direction, that nobody's remaining faithful to God, that the entire civilization is hellbound and proudly vocal about it, when that's kind of your sense of the situation, what do you do then? That's the, that's the question the psalm is asking us. What do you do when you feel as though you're the last person standing? Here's the answer. You keep standing. Sorry to disappoint you. Nothing novel there. Nothing clever Nothing extraordinarily ingenious. You just keep standing. Now hang with me. And the light bulb will go off in a moment. Don't lose me. I want to exhort you and encourage you to solidly stay firm on the foundation of who God is and what he has said. His word, his perfect word, his perfect character, his promises, you keep praying, even lamenting. You can't have those moments of hyperbolic praying where you're like, Lord, this is ridiculous what's happening. You can have those in an honest fashion with God while you're trusting that God will protect. You can express your feelings to God combined, of course, with a commitment to remaining faithful to God. Nothing wrong with that because lamenting is ultimately only as helpful as the object of your cry. Think about that. Who is hearing your words if it's not God? It's people who will ultimately destroy, take advantage of you. They're lying to you. Their words are full of flattery and deceit if you believe them instead of God, the end result of that is not a good picture. So watch this. Whose word 
will you trust to respond to your words? When you do cry out to God, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. Who's hearing that? The world? Good luck with that. But if it's God, promise protection. So stay right there. Trust God's word. Stay put. Don't move. As Paul told Titus in chapter one, hold fast to the faithful word. Now, stunningly, this answer to the question, what do you do when you feel like you're the last person standing? The answer, just keep standing, is very biblical. I'll refer to Ephesians 6, and I recall exactly where I was when the Holy Spirit just taught me this about, oh, eight days ago. I was coming into the office, in fact, and Taylor was the first person I saw. I Taylor, I got to tell you something incredibly simple and plain. Like, how have I missed it? But here's Ephesians 6. And the context is spiritual warfare and getting dressed in the armor of God. And so Paul then says, when you've done all you can to stand, watch this, stand. Like, Paul, could you not be a little more clever, please? Could you give us something novel and new? No. Here's what Paul says. Yeah, put on the breastplate and the helmet and the, 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 the belt of truth. Do all that. And when you've done all that and you're standing, oh, by the way, here's what you do next. You stand. So church, I don't have new information for you. I don't have something novel. I have the simplicity and the beautiful attractiveness of God's word to say to you, when you know what God says, put your feet on it and don't budge. Just stay put. Wear a smile. Put a rod of steel in your spine and say our feet are settled. Does that make sense? What do you do when you're the last person standing? You keep standing. And you realize that though you feel like you're the last one, you're probably not. There are other folks around you who are standing with you. Just right now, you feel the flood of evil rising and you just can't see it. But God will lift your eyes to see him and to see his church standing with you, lamenting even with you. I like this answer in Psalm 12 and I like the answer in Ephesians 6 because that's something I can do. Have you ever felt like that? Like, hey, this is right down my alley. I can stand and I can keep standing. Like, that's simple enough for me. I suspect it's simple enough for you. I want to learn three more things, remember 12. I can just do one thing and I can keep on doing. What's that? I can just stand. Know what God says? I'm gonna stand there. I can be polite, I can be kind but I'm not going to budge and we're not going to move. We're not going to waver. We're going to stay put and trust God's word. And the church said, amen. Now, when you're doing that, you can then lament because you're on a solid foundation. You're, you're expressing feelings while you're remaining faithful. So I think that's really the proper atmosphere for lamenting. That's why I'm not worried if you say, Todd, this whole thing, man, it's just hopeless. Okay, I'm with you. 
You're not budging or wavering. Your feet are solid, but boy, you're feeling the weight of sin's flood just crashing on you, aren't you? That's why I want to give you this one simple truth in light of this chapter, applicationally again, about lamenting. So you can continue to practice how to do it well. Here's what lamenting demands. It demands that we depend on God's word and not depart from it. Now, you've been great listeners this morning, but do not miss what I'm about to say next. If you don't glean from Psalm 12 that David is lamenting while depending on God's word, your tendency may be to lament when you depart from God's word. But that's not lamenting, that's rejecting. And rejecting is costly. It's damning. Lamenting is only lamenting. It's only an expression of feelings that at times are hyperbolic and that are questioning and that we're curious and we don't understand. And God, we're pouring our heart out to you. It's lamenting when we're faithful to stay with God, even in the midst of feelings we're not sure how to process. It's rejecting it's departing when you say, God, I don't know what you're doing, so I'm, I'm, I'm done with you. I'll trust someone else. And I would encourage you, don't depart. Depend on God's word. That's the surest foundation even for your moments of lamenting. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the 1800s, said this to his men at one point in his ministry in London. I read this this week and I thought, this is what I want our church to hear about our stance on God's word. No matter how pervasive evil feels, how dire the situation looks, we'll trust God's sure, tried and true, perfect word over the world's every time and we're gonna stay put with it. Here's what Charles Purgeon said to his men specifically, but I think it applies to all of us. He said, brethren, we cannot endure this shifty theology. May God send us a race of men who have backbones, men who believe something and would die for what they believe this book, speaking of the Bible, deserves the sacrifice of our all for the maintenance of every line in it. I'm no Charles Spurgeon, but I'd say amen and echo that to First Family Church. And when you feel like the world is a flood of sin just about to drown you, you remember God's decision. He will protect his people. And so when you have to make a choice about where you're going to stand... You take your stand with God and his word every single time. That's the place from which we lament and that's the place from which we long for Christ to come and right every wrong. And he will. His word is sure.